It's Angela Yee, and I'm telling you right now that the Alive Podcast Network app is the best directory of podcasts created for us by us. From relationships to making money moves, there's a show that'll captivate every listener. And for my fellow Black creatives, this is a call to action to take your brand and monetization to the next level. It's for the culture. Join the movement and sign up today. Sign up today to get a six-month subscription for $20. Visit AlivePodcastNetwork.com, coming soon to iOS and Android. The power of three. That's what we're discussing today on The Devil is a Lie. The Devil is a Lie. Here's your host, Angel Nicole. The Devil is a Lie. From the Holy Trinity to the Olympics gold, silver, and bronze medals, our society uses the power of thirds to build, capture images, and even tell powerful stories. A culmination of those stories, our guest, L. Sean Hazel, helped pass down for future generations to enjoy. His thesis design and documentation served as the foundation to what later became the National Museum of African American History and Culture on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. As an accomplished architect with a true appreciation for numbers and the ways in which they shape our society, Sean has carved out his legacy plan by way of building that will far exceed his existence. Currently, Sean is the acting chief of installation, support section for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, where he manages a variety of portfolios from leases to renovation to new construction. Please help me welcome Mr. Sean Hazel to The Devil is Alive. Welcome, Sean. Thank you so much, Angel. Really excited. All right. So what's the L for in L Sean? <laughs> it's actually La Sean, but everyone calls me Sean. So in all of my legal documentation, you'll see La Sean. And then everybody said, well, who is <laughs> Where's she at? You know, that's a whole experience um, that you kind of get with unique names um, when, you, when your parents are young. So <laughs> <laughs> Now, I want to dive into your thesis, um, just because I find that that's very interesting, um, that you were a part of something and had kind of like that vision for uh, what you created visually, design-wise, and then the documentation. Tell us a little bit about what inspired that and what that process was like. Great question. The The education of architecture um, in, in most schools predominantly starts with Europe, uh, maybe Greece, Italy, a little bit of Egypt. Uh, so a lot of the students, we had like a cross-section of students from different parts of the world. Um, and some students chose to focus on architecture and built environment that was indigenous to their culture. Um, and so all throughout undergraduate and graduate school, we really didn't get an opportunity to really dive into any type of architecture with a deep Afrocentric influence. And so during my thesis project, I took it upon myself to kind of, you know, dive into architecture that is more inherent with me, my culture and background, other than kind of what we see from day to day, which is pretty much stems from just economic uh, return. Um, and so the, the, the premises of the thesis was that 
every culture of people have a built environment that's inherently to them and that speaks to them. And so, you know, it was um, a labor of love and something that had inspired me during graduate school to learn about a particular architectural history, culture and built environment that a lot of times is just not part of the curriculum um, to kind of begin with. During my last two years in graduate school, um, I took it upon myself by any chance to to study uh, Black architects and history, uh, schools, where they come from, the learning. And so I came across uh, two Black architects, Philip Freelong, uh, who was unfortunately had passed, and also another architect out of London called, uh, his name is David Ajaye. And uh, they were major influences in infusing African architecture into uh, what we see uh, with the African-American Museum on the Mall today. Was your uh, documentation and design actually presented to the museum as a potential kind of blueprint to get started? Or how was it? How did it all come together? like your work and the museum? So at the time, um, Philip Freelon, who had a firm in North Carolina, was um, completing smaller projects that were museums. Their works inside of the museum was African artists, Afrocentric in nature. And so in starting my research, I wanted to figure out what kind of went into influencing just a museum that would have pieces in there that are um, of African descent or African influence. And so um, reaching out to him, he kind of, you know, kind of supported me and 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 something that is not typically taught in school. And so the way it came about was at the time there was an there was an African American museum in Baltimore, um, I believe it's off Pratt Street. And I asked him, is this building Afrocentric in nature. And he said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, it's 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 imposed. It's in thought. It's in spirit. But the reasoning behind why one culture bill versus another um, is completely different. And so one thing that he was able to share with me is just in programming what spaces is involved inside of that building and that. He looked at the history. He looked at ideals as it related to the culture and specifically East Africa and superimposed those ideals and concepts within the materials of what he was building um, and to see it and basically, I would say, plan, um, elevation and section. Um, and so a lot of architects would understand that language. So what I did is I took it upon myself to dig into different cultures in East Africa of why the shape in the building kind of influence what they do, which really is driven from function, not form first. So that relationship with form and function kind of speaks to kind of my early writings and and thesis of what an African-American design museum would look like in Washington, D.C., or any city that specifically speaks to the culture um, and the people of having a, a sense of art appreciation. 
So you essentially passed on your information to the architect that designed the museum on the mall. Correct. That there was a dialogue. Okay. Um, for what we could speak to without crossing the line, because it is it is the national mall. Mm-hmm. Um, what type of piece or or form could that particular structure speaks to if it's on the mall? It doesn't invade the space. It doesn't impress upon something that's different than what we understand it to be. And that kind of influence, the shape being like a crown, taking people on a journey. We had a dialogue of of different ways of how architecture internal-wise can be infused into a building of serving like a teaching tool and a lesson to people who visit the building as well without it just overwhelmingly being at peace that's foreign to what you may see on the mall. I want to dive into kind of the power of threes and the museum even has that three layer approach, right? You described it as a crown and, you know, some people may see the crown. I had never saw the crown until you said it, (laughs) but the, the visual aesthetics of, you know, what it looks like, the placement of it. Um, And again, going back to the power of threes. And so I started the show out talking about how the, the symbolism and the relation between numbers and structures and architecture and just every everyday things that we don't even think about anymore. Whether it's, you know, you're writing a story, if you're going to say you want to give emphasis, sometimes you use three words with like the same, they all kind of start with the same letter, you know, or if you designing something, you know, visually, like on a website, you may have like three graphics in alignment or three columns. So this idea of the power of threes is something that we are familiar with, but sometimes I don't even think we realize it because it's so ingrained in how we think and we just process it so naturally. Talk to me a little bit about what the power of three looks like from an architectural standpoint. Um, Man, that's another great question. Because another subject of interest that I do study is is numbers and, and how we see those in day-to-day life. And one thing you'll see about the power of three in architecture is just a simple triangle. And that triangle is repeated in shape and structures and foundations and footings. And also the premises of what you may see on the mall um, with the crown and the three layers of what you see is an early form of pyramid called a Mustafa. And that pyramid looked at like a cake. That is just one of the, the foundational uh, premise of what you would see that constantly gets repeated um, when you're looking at buildings in order to give them balance, um, in order to make them static. And it's, it's sometimes infused, you know, um, and we don't even know it. You know, we don't even know that numbers is a critical part of architecture and things being balanced and things uh, being being in place in, in a natural form and order um, where it's not chaos or where it's not falling down. So numbers is, is constantly telling the story of what we see and what moves us. And it's, it's, it's pretty much the premise and basis of, um, of what architects and designers do is that they're always looking for, for balance and, and what they do from day-to-day work. Um, but numbers and, and, and looking at things in three or sixes or nines, 
which is just a repeat of uh, three. number three. Um, it's constantly mm-hmm. using what you see from day to day. You said something earlier that I have to go back to because as a storyteller at heart, I love telling powerful stories and you have a, like this love for numbers and numerology and the ability of these numbers to tell stories. So talk to us a little bit about how numbers help tell stories. Oh, wow. Um, So... That's another great question. Um, <laughs> because I guess with me dealing with numbers in my life, I, I kind of look for numbers in other things, you know, whether it's people's birthday, whether it's an address, whether it's shoe sizes, whether people are. Shoe sizes? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 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 you may hear one oh, six foot guy with this and, and that and the third. And, and even within the number six, you got three twice. So. That number of, of three and, you know, is constantly infused. And when you see numbers in people's uh, names and dates, uh, whether it's anniversaries, you know, whether it's height and weights, um, numbers constantly, it constantly tells a story of, of what I do. And I typically, um, a lot of times, reach people with numbers. You know, even me, I'm writing notes and... <laughs> It was interesting. A famous numerologist, uh, Lord Strayhorn, me and him had a conversation and he said, you know, people always say, you know, numbers not important until you move a decimal point based on pay. No, that's right. It's interesting that we choose to engage in numbers when it when it's beneficial. Beneficial. I was born on the third. So the power of three is it's always interesting to me. And before this interview, I did a little research on what the number three means. So if you meet somebody and you identify their birthday, I want you to tell me what that means to you as this, I'm going to say an architect of numbers, right? I'm not going to call you a numerologist, but an architect of numbers. Would you be able to tell me like, hey, like, this is what I kind of foresee like about you, your character and how you go about like just who you are. Well, with, with research and numbers, because um, it's, it's sometimes difficult to kind of regurgitate what different numbers mean. But mm-hmm. when you a little bit more background on someone, um, different things with numbers and people is inherent to how they think and move. You know, so when someone has a particular birthday or date, that's synonymous with their name um, as you study it. A, a lot of times that will help you to to bring a little bit more synergy to to projects. So, so wait, I, their birthday and their name? Both. Yeah, both. Um, so also with numbers as well, letters also speaks to numbers as well. So when you look at numbers, um, which is universal, which is universal, that's why um, architects from 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 different countries pretty much can, can can translate documents, whether it's from continent to continent, but also names do as well. When you really study numbers and and, and what that means all, all before you get to a built environment, um, in early forms of writing, um, a lot of letters looked at like numbers. And so mm-hmm. um, you, 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 you could say both of them is, is, is kind of related themselves. But when you start to really get into numbers and, and deep dive, you can actually break your name down. Some people believe in it. Some people don't. But but like I said before, you know, when it involves pay and salary and distance and size, you know, all of those things then start to become 
important. Um, but there is a relationship um, between numbers and, and what people do and why we do it, even if we don't see them. So there, there's always a, a, a intricate conversation that's constantly going on. Whether we choose to kind of deep dive in that, you know, nature still kind of takes its place. When and where did your love for numbers develop? Do you remember? Wow. Um, I think it was due geometry. You know, I always loved math and being young. And growing up in the inner city, in Jersey City, I would always see the Twin Towers walking to school. And I was always intrigued about the height, the size, uh, how far the building was from my house um, growing up in Jersey City. And um, as I kind of moved throughout my education, um, numbers always seemed to speak to me and and it felt like more having fun. Than, than than actually doing work. And some of the, the earlier forms of me working with numbers was actually drafting in high school. And drafting, everything is, is very much calculated. And you somehow come about creating different industrial products, you know, whether it's a jack, whether it's a car, and all that's done through drafting with numbers. So um, that heavily influenced me and in that um, it was kind of like an equation of a puzzle. You guys are tuned in to The Devil is a Lie podcast with Angel Nicole. Our guest is architect extraordinaire, Mr. Sean Hazel. Now, Sean, we're going to move the conversation into our Devil is a Lie moments. Now, this is where I'm going to ask you to share a time or place that you were dealing with imposter syndrome or just dealing with adversity and having to overcome it. So what I would like to know is what that moment was, uh, what you did to get through it, and then what was waiting for you on the other side. One of those imposter moments was was actually um, when your client uh, don't believe who you say you are um, until things kind of break down. So in my profession, um, I'm required to travel a lot. And um, the thing about um, architecture as it relates to a minority is that we're a very small percentage, very small, probably less than 5% in educated architects out of all architects, and then less than 1% in license and and in position of play, um, as I would say. And so uh, one of the moments is that had a building under construction. Um, it was going uh, relatively well. And it was time to make payment and to make sure that the general contractors was doing as such. And um, all along, you know, different people were talking to the the particular client or one of the individuals that influenced the building. And they wanted to know who had final say um, and how things looked. And um, the gentleman that was two gentlemen that was talking basically were like, well, who's in charge around here? And all along the time, I would think probably like six months past, uh, one of the gentlemen said to the other one, that guy there is the designer, that guy there is the architect talking about me and that he's the one who's kind of the, the rhyme and reason of kind of why everybody's working in symmetry um, and, and behind how things are, are done. So um it, at at times at times it's laughable, but at the other times, um, just living in in today's time, we think sometimes people are, are are more open and educated that that 
that that people on TV don't look like people in life and reality. You know, whether that's a prejudice or, or, or whether we believe that that someone of minority um, can have something accomplished on a large scale. So that that was one of those times where, you know, you're in a room and, um, you know, it was almost like an imposter, like, oh, I didn't know he was supposed to be here. You know, I didn't know that he does that. And so um, that that still kind of happens um, in this day and time in the profession of what I do. So does it make you feel a kind of way? Because typically like the imposter syndrome is like more internal. Like how did it impact or what was the outcome? Like, did he speak to you? Did he like, like, oh, like he's the guy? Like what was that final exchange like? Um, I think it was an educational moment. For me, because it was per se uh, somewhat common and it wasn't the first time it happened, it was a teachable time, you know, for me to teach the different clients and different people as part of a team, which could be hundreds of people that someone in the lead role may not look like them. You know, it may they may not look like someone from television and um, just let whatever audience know that, you know, as a minority, you're just as capable as anyone else. Now, have you had to have those teachable moments with people who do look like you? Absolutely. Because sometimes those are the worst. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, your question, because like I say, again, you know, media and our perception of what someone's supposed to look like, you know, um, that's also a growing pain is that someone like me being in maybe small towns or different cities, just based on the needs of one or where you may find an architect, they didn't believe who I was un, un, until someone else kind of supported. Yes, this guy is who he say. I work for him. He he does this. You know, he run he runs the show. You know, from from beginning to end. And so even sometimes with with our people in in, in itself don't believe because they may not see it from time to time, you know. Um, and so I take the opportunity to, to kind of talk and, and, and maybe speak to their insecurities or, or, or their non-knowledge of, 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 of what an architect is, what he can do, and try to make it plain, try to make it tangible. And, and I think that goes a long way. You know, I don't know whether I uh, punch through every now and then, but I think it goes a long way. Before we got started with today's episode, we had a conversation around um, imposterous thoughts. And you were more so sharing with me, like, I just had to do it. Because I asked, well, what made you decide to come on this particular day to share your story and your passion around architecture and numbers? And what did you tell me? Procrastination is one things that kind of stop growth. And I drive every day to to push teams, and 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 it's sometimes easier pushing people than pushing ourselves. And I was saying um, during my preparation today, I'm I'm like, there's no need to stall. You know, you know what you know, um, and you do what you do. Just just speak to that language. But I still took it upon myself that if I was nervous or I did rants to kind of outline, you know, what I was going to do, you know? And so um, it, it may be needed in the future for something, you know, but I probably spent probably like an hour just preparing, just writing and uh, jotting down notes and, and, and speaking to what I may, uh, may want to say, um, depending on how the conversation went. So. And did you say any of those things that you wrote? 
maybe five percent. Maybe five percent. I'll give myself five percent. More than that, no, no, it, it didn't happen. You, know, one mentor said, you know, when you do business, ninety-five percent of the things that you think going to happen, they never happen. In terms of, in terms of being pessimistic, it never happens. You know, so. The boogeyman, he, he, he's not going to show up, you know. <laughs> so what is something that you prepared for that I did not ask you about? Um, One of the things was 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 just uh, was education. You know, um, one of the things was education. And a lot of teenagers and, and grade schoolers always ask me what it takes to be an architect. And um, I, I typically kind of direct them. And to taking courses, uh, like I said, geometry, uh, math, art, um, painting, anything to kind of get the mental juices going um, as a basis uh, for 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 preparation of of the formative of the formal years um, or the latter years uh, of of being an architect, um, moving on to, to to undergrad, and so that was one thing that I you know that. I, I try to is, is is to let people know that they can do it because a lot of time they don't see people um, of, of minorities in the position of power being in the U.S. or accomplishing things. You know, media is a lot of time driven by music, uh, sports, comedy um, and, and other arts. Um, but a lot of times uh, architects and engineers and, and builders where it involves math is very intimidating. And so I take the time when I can uh, to educate uh, younger adults. And they asked President um, at the time, Obama, what would he be if he wasn't striving in politics? Number one answer mm-hmm. of people's dream job. And the same thing he said was architect. Really? It's funny. My mother uh, studied architecture and she didn't study it until later in life, like in her 50s. and so. I think the motivation behind it for her was she's amazing at interior design. Like my mother is like, she will walk in somebody's house and have it completely redone and looking like you're living in a palace. Right. And so when she went to school, they didn't offer interior design. The closest thing was architecture. And so she did it. And I know that going through the program as an older African-American woman, you know, she often was like, yo, like these people really don't want me to do this. They really don't want to see me succeed and get this degree. And so I'm always curious from the educational standpoint, not even just educational, but walking in an industry where one, you just said number one industry that people say they want to go into, but once they start on that path, most people don't cross the finish line. You started the show off saying like it's less than 5% are actually African-American. So how do Blacks who are interested in being in architecture stay motivated? And are there organizations that they can join where they can have kind of like the support? Because I know, again, from my mom, she didn't have that support outside of like her family and friends to be able to call and be like, yo, these people like this ain't it. You know what I mean? So how do you stay motivated and encouraged? The, the, the number one way um, is is really staying connected to people who is actually doing it. Now, being in the information age, that's a little bit much easier uh, where you can Google or visit firms. Two organizations 
Um, one uh, being the primary organization, which is the, the um, American Institute of Architects, which is which is based in Washington D.C., does a lot to uh, market and open up the arena of of just the general public learning about architecture and what we do. Um, the National Organization of Minority Architects um, also is another organization which was built around minorities to educate them, educate students, encourage students, you know, whether it's at an HBCU or another institution about the, the education of architects and how to become one. So a lot of times we're intimidated because of just, you know, whether um, people feel like whether they're qualified, you know, whether they're capable of doing it, because the first thing that I hear a lot of people say they're intimidated from is the math, you know, and immediately because how maybe was presented to them, a lot of times it's a deterrent. And so mm-hmm. having a mentor, having someone that looks like me being in that environment it, it's constantly encouraging in order to uh, be successful. Um, because no one knows everything, but working, you know, on a team or, or being a part of an organization is key. Now, you recently started your own firm. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. What would you say to our listeners? I guess the three things that you should do to kind of get out of your own way and get out of your head and get into action to make your dreams come true. Not try to do it. Not try to figure out everything all at once. What happens even with the process when I work with clients is that one tries to figure out everything all at one time and, and completely get overwhelmed. And and the, the answer to complexity is simplicity, you know, breaking it down step by step. And then that's one thing I also do with students is just breaking things down and making it digestible. Um, so the more digestible uh, people see what they're trying to do, it makes it a little bit more teachable. You know, so that is a I think that's a major key. It's just digesting the information and, and not becoming overwhelmed by trying to figure everything out in the beginning. That is key. That is very key. So. I would love for people to be able to get connected to you, um, especially with your new business. So if you want to talk about your business really quickly and share your any social media handles or a website, that way our audience can get in contact with you, especially if they're looking for a mentor. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um My email is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hazelholdingsdc.com. You can reach me at the website or email and, um, you know, get the conversation going. Oh my gosh, Sean, this has been so much information. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and your passion for architecture with us. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And to you at home, this has been so much fun. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as I have. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so be sure to leave us a comment on the podcast page that you're listening. And I know a few of you have reached out and asked me, hey, I would love to follow you on social media, and you can do so by following me at the T-H-E-E Angel Nicole on all social media platforms. 
The Devil is a Lie is a production of the Alive Podcast Network, engineered by Julio Gonzalez of Zymer.co, and music provided by Audio Vibes. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media at Alive Podcast Network. If you are interested in joining the Alive Podcast Network family, visit AlivePodcastNetwork.com to learn more. We hope that you enjoyed today's show and remember, there is greatness within you. And if anyone tells you anything different, the devil is a lie. Until next time, be blessed. The devil is a lie.